Sometimes God has a way of setting things up in advance. This was not my divine knowledge. God doesn't make mistakes. It was raining outside that wasn't beyond him. Another way he did that, uh, we're just been moving through Philippians. And it's incredible on Father's Day uh, that Paul is writing about where we happen to land today about a father-son uh, relationship between he and Timothy. So we're going to look at that today. But you will need your Bibles. If you see, we're doing a park stripped-down version. There's no PowerPoint today. I'm feeling extremely extremely vulnerable. This is the first time in my history here at the church that I have not preached with a PowerPoint. So my Linus blanket is missing. Uh, We'll see how this goes. So you will need your Bible this morning, Philippians 2. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Uh, God bless your own version. And um, here we go. So three parts. We've been looking at at Philippians chapter 2. We've been talking about humility. Today we're going to look at the third and final part um, on, on that topic. Part one, we saw the charge to humility. Verses three and four, look along with me, uh, since it's not up on the screen. Stay, stay the course, Justin. Do nothing, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, rather value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. So Paul kind of defines humility for us. He says, in humility, value others above yourselves, and don't just look out for your own interests, but for those of others. Humility is a call to see our place rightly in the universe. God is creator, we are the created. We are called to submit, obey, and trust him, and then to value the other creatures that he created in the same manner that we would care about our own interests. And he gave us this great example of Christ who, who forsake, he, he showed us what this looked like when he gave up his place and privilege as God. He comes to the earth, humbles himself, becomes nothing, becomes a man, becomes our servant. The king of the universe becomes our servant. And he becomes our sacrifice so that we might have life. And then in part two, we saw that part of what humbling ourselves before God means is that we do everything without complaining or arguing. He said, we don't murmur. Remember we said it does the onomatopoeia for murmur, murmur, and we're just upset, and we are whining, and we we don't um, show contentment. But he said, instead, rest in the grace of God and trust that he has a plan and a purpose, that God is not making mistakes, that he has you where he has you for a reason. And when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, Paul said, like a lighthouse in the storm, he said, what will happen is you will shine like stars in this dark world in the midst of a grumbling, complaining world that doesn't trust Jesus, that, has, that has, has gone dark. He says, we will shine, and not only will we shine like stars, we will hold forth the life of Jesus to those who desperately, desperately need him. And now this week, our third and final part in chapter 2, Paul is going to put skin on this humility. He is going to give us three examples, living examples of what it looks like to walk in this manner. He's going to show us his own example in his life, in the life of Timothy, and then in the life of Epaphroditus. So he says, like a father to a son. Let's, let's jump in. Number one, Paul. I don't know if it's a humble place to start with yourself talking about humility, uh, but that's where Paul goes. So verses 17 and 18 says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. He says he is being poured out like a drink offering. This is a call, and and his audience would have been very well aware of the Old Testament allusions. This was a a sacrifice, an offering that was made. 
um, under the law, the worshiper would bring an animal sacrifice to the altar. They would place that sacrifice on the altar, offering it to the Lord, and then that sacrificial animal was killed, was totally consumed by fire, which represented the believer's complete devotion and commitment and surrender to God. And then at this point, the worshiper made an additional offering called the libation or a drink offering. Now, this drink offering was usually a cup of wine, and they would pour it on top of the altar and the animal that was already being consumed. And because of this fire, the instant that this wine touched the altar, it would just go up in a cloud of smoke. It was a vapor, gone in an instant. And Paul says to the Philippians, listen, I know you're worried about me, um, but... But my life, he says, my life's not the important thing. He says, the main offering, the main offering is you giving yourselves completely to the Lord. The surrendering your faith to him, your trust in him, your all in with him. And then he says, my life is just a drink offering given for you. as just a puff of smoke. And notice that he says, he says, he, he doesn't say, I'm glad that I'm suffering. That's not what he says. He, he says his suffering does not inhibit, does not prevent him from rejoicing. See, there's, there's never a call in Scripture to rejoice in suffering. Like, I'm so glad that I'm hurting. I'm so glad that I'm in pain. That's called, that's called masochism. And that's somebody needs professional help if that's where they're at. But he's rejoicing. What is he rejoicing in? Verse 17. He says, the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. So the thing he's rejoicing in, he says, you are clinging to Jesus. And if, and if you push all your chips in on him, if you surrender yourself to him, he says, all of my suffering is worth it. It's worth it. And he said the same thing back in verse 16. He said, if you hold fast to the word of life, if you hold fast to Jesus, then he says, then he says, all of my boasting about you on the day of Christ Jesus will not be in vain. I did not suffer needlessly because the reason I was poured out as a drink offering was so that you might trust in Jesus. And this is crazy. This is crazy. Paul says, I don't care what I suffer. I don't care what I, what I face. If you, if you offer your life to Jesus, I will go to hell and back for you and rejoice the entire time. This is a man who has eternity in his mind. This is a man following the example of Jesus that he had set pouring his own life out as an offering for the sake of others. A man like Jesus with a humble mind who is just as interested in the needs of others as his own. It's amazing. And the second example he gives is Timothy. This is what I would call Paul 2.0. Okay, look at with me, verse 19 through 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Did you catch that? He says, I have no one else like him in this regard. Verse 21, for everyone else looks out for their own interest, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a father with his, as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. So Paul, see he was tied up at the moment. 
literally. Um, and so instead, he couldn't come to them. He had to send Timothy to them. And the reason he sends Timothy, and it's interesting, he does not send Timothy to the Philippians to tell them how he's doing. He sends Timothy to the Philippians so that he can get a report back from Timothy on how they're doing. Here's a man who's in prison, a man who, who has been beaten, a man who, who is facing potentially imminent death, and where his mindset is on is the, this, the welfare of this church that's 800 miles away. That's humility. That's a selfless mindset. And why Timothy? Why did Paul have to send Timothy? He had many other partners in the gospel, many other people there in the prison with him. But notice what he said. He said, Timothy is the only one who is genuinely looking out to the interests of others, not just his own. Like, that's crazy. You think about, I mean, all the people that Paul is rubbing shoulders with, and commentaries are split on whether he's just talking about those who were right in his midst right then, or if he's saying in all of his ministry he's never come across selfless people. But either way, we know the tendency of the human heart, don't we? We know the tendency of our own heart to look out for our own interest first, to look out for ourselves as number one. And a truly selfless person is a rarity. But the cool thing is, as we grow in Christ by his grace, what happens is our minds start to be transformed, to become like his, where we are others-focused. You think about Jesus on the cross. Jesus is, is suffering more than any of us can ever imagine. And where's his mind? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The very ones who are killing him. He says, God, don't hold it and then he turns to the thief on the cross and what does he say today you will be with me in paradise and then he looks down and, and he sees mary standing beside john and he says john take care of my mom all the while where he is suffering the greatest torture devised by the the greatest empire to date that the world has ever known and his mind is not on his own pain but on those around him who he loves that's why he died was for others so here's the question why did why did timothy have this mindset what made him unique what set him apart from the other people who were looking out for their own interest instead of others he learned it from Paul, right? The very one who says, I'm pouring my life out selflessly as a drink offering for you. That's his great example. But he did not learn this from Paul in a classroom. This wasn't Jesus University taking Humility 101 with Paul as his great professor and Timothy the prize student. This wasn't in a theoretical situation in a classroom. Don Stubbs touched on this last week. Discipleship does not happen in a classroom, it happens day to day as we live life together. See, discipleship is caught. It's not taught. It's not just something you, you hear in a lesson around a Sunday school table, although it is that. But it goes much deeper than that. It's, it's a lifestyle. I remember last week, Don, saying that you would recognize a disciple by the dust on their face the dust that came from their master's sandals, who they were following wherever they went. And in verse 22, he says, as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. This has been Paul and Timothy side by side like a father with a son. And I was thinking about my own dad. 
and watching him growing up. I remember I would just follow him around wherever he went. I loved to watch him shave. Okay, I was a real weirdo, and I would just sit there and watch him shave. And so then I, I wanted to shave like my dad. And so my mom and dad, they bought me this Mickey Mouse shaving kit, and so I would shave along with him as part of being an Italian. I had like a five o'clock shadow by the time I was three, you know. So, so here I am shaving alongside my dad. And wherever he'd go, I'd go. So he's going to, you know, make breakfast in the morning, flipping French toast. I'm watching him. I'm observing as he burns the French toast once again. Um, you know, okay, don't do that, right? I would jump on the three-wheeler with him and go off to work with him. I would watch the way he talked to people, watch the way he interacted with people. I'd watch the way he'd mow the lawn. Like, he has this very intense face when he mows the lawn. And every little hill, he's like this extreme exaggeration. Like, he's like, you all right? Um, I watched how patiently he loved people how generous he is. Like last night when I called him up and said, hey, we're going to have church service at the church. Would you mind teaching the fours and fives? No problem. Be my joy. My dad can sit on the floor and play with a three-year-old for hours and just love him. It's amazing. And so here I am watching and learning and following after my dad. Listen, for better and for worse. Like my dad makes mistakes. Every earthly father does but I'm learning. And for better and for worse, I am like my dad. And so for more than 10 years, Timothy, as a son with his father, serves alongside Paul. Wherever Paul goes, he goes. Whatever Paul does, he does. He watches the way Paul speaks at churches. He watches the way Paul handles a night, the next morning when he hasn't had enough sleep. He watches how Paul talks. He watches how he laughs. He, watch, he, he knows how Paul snores in the tent, right? Paul was a tent maker, so I guess they spent some time in tents. Um, he watched how he talked to people. He watched how he reacted when the crowds beat him and imprisoned him. And Timothy was there watching and learning and becoming like Paul. And that's how he developed Paul's unique heart of humility for others. It wasn't just that Paul taught him, it's that Paul showed him. And as he walked with Paul, it was caught, not just taught. And then the third person we want to look at is Epaphroditus. Look in verse 25, and then we'll go to the end of the chapter. And, and what I want you to do as we read through this, look for all the different ways. This is, incre- this is incredible. Everybody is just concerned about everybody else, okay? So just watch this. Um, but I think it is necessary to send back to you, Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, uh, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, and he almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. This is, this, is, this is wild. So Epaphroditus, he was a member of the Philippian church, and he was sent to Rome, remember we talked about it, um, to take a gift that the Philippians had sent along, probably a financial gift to give to Paul uh, from the church, and then he stayed there as long as possible to comfort Paul while he was under house arrest. And then while he was there, he says he got so sick that he almost died. 
God miraculously saves him, heals him, but not before the Philippian church hears about his sickness and gets super stressed out about it. They're just worrying about what's going to happen to Epaphroditus. So Paul makes the call to send him back to the church to show that he's in good health because Paul's worried about the Philippians worrying about Epaphroditus. And then he uses Epaphroditus' trip home to send this very letter to them that we're reading today. And I just think about this triangle of selfishness. So you have the Philippians. They're not concerned about themselves, but they're concerned about Epaphroditus' well-being. And of course, for Paul's, that's why they sent him in the first place. Epaphroditus isn't concerned about his own health. He's worried because the Philippians are worried about him. And he came to comfort Paul, be there for Paul, even though he gets sick. He said, I don't care. I'm here for you. And then Paul isn't concerned about his own imprisonment. He's concerned about the Philippians' concern about Epaphroditus. So it's just this, like this big old love fest. Like everybody's just taking care of each other, concerned about each other. What an example for us. And you know one of the cool things about Epaphroditus? He's just a regular dude. He's not a pastor. He's not an evangelist. He's not a super Christian. He's just a regular dude in the church that caught humility by living alongside Timothy and Paul. He caught it. And all of them are following the example of Christ. And can I just say here, the Christian life is not about imitation. It's not about watching Jesus in the Gospels and saying, I got to do that. Kind of our WWJD mantra. Now, if you have bracelets, that's cool. I'm not hating on the whole thing. But I think what it does is it teaches us that we're just supposed to imitate. We are not called to imitate. You know what the really cool thing about being a believer is, one of the hundreds and millions of them, is that when, when God saves us, He unites our lives together with Christ. And so now Christ lives in us. And so when when we act selflessly to others, it's not us just doing our best Jesus impersonation. It is Jesus' life, it is Jesus' humility in and through us. It's amazing. It's not imitation, it's transformation. And it's a unity with the God and Savior of the universe. It's a privilege that none of us deserve, but we'll be eternally grateful for. And again, I was thinking about my own dad as an example of this, of putting others in front of yourself, and whether or not it was something that I caught, and how much I've lived this out myself, he definitely lived out in front of our family, putting our needs before his. I remember as a kid, uh, when my dad stepped down as children's pastor here in the mid to late 90s, And work was hard to come by, and one of the only jobs he could get was the oil field, which eventually took him to the slope. And as many of you know who have lived slope lives or have lived shift lifestyles, it's a challenge. And my dad missed half of our lives for 12 years. Half of our birthdays, half of our basketball games, half of our inside jokes, half of our family dinners, half of our church services. And not to mention that, my dad didn't exactly fit in with the slope culture. Uh, I think the (laughs) worst word my dad has ever said is doggone it. Um, He was kind of like throwing Elmo in in a room with Hell's Angels and kind of seeing what happens. Um, But he did it for us so that we could eat and wear clothes, go to camp. And I never, ever, ever heard him complain. Not once. Because he put his family before himself. 
And, and I caught this lesson of humility from my father, not because he taught it in a Sunday school class, although he probably did teach me that in a Sunday school class, but he lived it out in front of me day after day after day. And I just pray that this, his example of selflessness, selflessness is something that I've caught at least a fraction of in my own life. So here's my charge to us. Are we doing life together? Like, are we genuinely doing this thing in community? Um, and not just as fathers with sons, not just children with parents, although it starts there. It is that, but it is more than that. As believers of a local body and with those that God has called us to reach out to in this community, discipleship starts before conversion. Are we inviting people into our lives? Or are we inviting people over for dinner? so that they can see how we speak to our spouse, how we discipline our children, the words that come out of our mouth, for better and for worse, like when we're not in church. Listen, being an example to others is not about being perfect. It's not, because none of us are. That would just be hypocrisy. It's about how do we respond when we make mistakes in our lives. The gospel is about repentance and forgiveness. It's not about perfection. It's not about pretending. And this is the cool thing about Jesus' model of discipleship. It's not adding another program onto the docket. It's not, well, we need a discipleship program so we can do that. Don said last week, discipleship is not a program. It's not a class. It's a lifestyle and it's a culture. It's living life together. I think it was Deanne last week who said, or maybe it was Don. I, I don't remember. They look so much alike. Um, she's, Jesus said, make disciples as you are going as you are going, okay, so not, so whatever you're doing, do it in a manner that's making disciples, that you're being made a disciple, and that you're making other disciples, so everybody here eats, right, I hope so, um, you already eat, invite somebody over for dinner, or Don was talking to us, the elders uh, last week, invite yourself over to somebody else's house for dinner, I like that option better, uh, and, and, and in all reality, for some of us, that's just the safer option, but for others, it is, it is, I mean, for, you have a family with kids, it's hard to relocate, so I'll just come over to your place, and I'll bring some chicken, or I'll bring some whatever, usually the single guy, it's I'll bring the drinks, or the chips, or something, um, you know, you're already going on runs, and, and jogging, you weirdos, um, bring someone else who likes jogging alongside with you, like, you're already cooking, you're already gardening, you're already, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, you're, you're watching your kids, why not get together and watch your kids together? Be intentional with who you invite alongside you. Let's do ministry together, that people can be watching each other, we can be training together as we're speaking with friends who aren't believers. How do, you, how do I share my faith? Well, watch somebody else alongside them as they're doing it. How do I serve in the church? Well, come alongside. I love in some of our Sunday school programs, you know, there'll be an, an older person alongside a younger person, and they're watching them teach. Not just, well, let's train them in a class, in a vacuum. Let's just do it together. Do the things that we're already doing, but do them together. And it's finding the whole gamut, finding people who are more spiritually mature than you that you can learn from, peers that you can kind of walk through this thing together, those who will be looking up to you. It's a whole spectrum. And above all, let's not just do these things for the sake of doing them, but let's do them to know our Savior better. Let's, let's follow Jesus together side by side with his sandal dust in our faces. Let's pray. Father, you've invited us into this amazing life 
or you've chosen to, to join us, if we will just simply believe and surrender our lives to Jesus, that you, you make us one with him, his life and our life joined for eternity. And you've called us into this thing, not just adding Sunday mornings into our already busy schedule. This is a complete lifestyle that you've called us into. And not just to do this by ourselves, but to do this thing together, this discipleship-making thing together. And Lord, I just pray that you, would, that you would transform our minds to be like Christ's, where our minds are completely on others, on our children, on our spouses, on our family, on our friends, on our coworkers, the sphere of influence that you've already given us, that the one thing that we would care about above all things is that this world, this dying, lost world would know you as Savior, as Lord, as healer, as friend, as God. Give us the desire. Give us the hunger and thirst for Jesus first and foremost. And as we thirst and hunger for him and he satisfies us, we will then turn and share that with this world. May we rub shoulders and get messy with this world, with the people you've put in our lives, both believers and unbelievers, that we would walk in this thing called discipleship together, that it would be caught, not just taught, that we would live it as my father lived out in front of me by your power, through your grace, for your glory. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.